0: All right, everybody, let's get ready for Places. Welcome to Waiting for Places. Dr. Jennifer, I am so excited to have you here. I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> I, I know that you don't, you're not technically a doctor yet, but I also know that Amanda Spooner calls you Dr. Jennifer, and I love that because as far as I know, you are the only person to get a PhD in the history of stage management. Is that true? To the best of my knowledge, I would uh,
1: mostly agree with that. I, uh, obviously there are other stage managers out there who have PhD degrees, um, as well as any number of other degrees. Uh, But to the best of my knowledge, I have not been able to come across another PhD dissertation that's specifically focused on stage management history.
0: Okay, again, very specific, but so exciting. And your (laughs) dissertation, Your presentation is in May, and then when is your dissertation supposed to come out so that we can all eagerly buy it and read it? So you won't have to buy it. It
1: will be available through ProQuest. So if you are associated with a university, you should have access to ProQuest dissertations using your um, university affiliation. Um, And also uh, the University of Illinois has a digital uh, repository of all of the dissertations that actually get um, that go through the entire university. So uh, everyone else who doesn't have ProQuest will be able to go to their website, which is called IDEALS. Don't I don't know. I don't think that I could name the full name. I think it's the Illinois Dissertation. An education, digital education. I can't remember. I'm sorry, <laughs> but either way, if you go to the ideals UIUC website, it'll show you their entire repository of all of the dissertations. So mine will eventually make it up to onto that website. Um, it will probably take about four to six months, though. So we're looking at uh, hopefully November, but that it uh, the date in which that starts is actually the date that my dissertation gets approved of by the graduate college, which is an an additional step that happens after I get my, after I pass my defense. Hopefully for Christmas, you should have it. Hopefully.
0: Christmas is gonna be really (laughs) great. (laughs) Here it comes. I'm so excited. Okay, but let's take it back. You're about to graduate. Let's take it back to wee tiny baby, Dr. Jennifer. Yeah. How? Where did you grow up? Like, why did you choose stage management? What led you to this moment where you're about to defend your dissertation? Oh my gosh. Um, well, I actually grew up in Connecticut,
1: uh, uh, and I come from actually a very big family. I'm one of five kids. I have three much older sisters who were actually in high school when I was born, and my favorite like. I guess origin story, for lack of a better term, uh, that I like to tell people. Although my family questions, like the the reality, the truth. You know in the actual story but it's my favorite one to hear is how my mom actually her water broke for when she was pregnant with me in the middle of little abner which was the high school presentation that all my sisters were in Um, and i should also note that i'm a twin so it wasn't just me in there it was also my twin brother and my mom refused to get up during intermission because she was worried about giving birth to us in that moment And so instead she waited until the end of the show and then they rushed off to the hospital, but then I didn't come for another like six hours until like 7am the next day. (laughs) Um, So yeah. uh, And I feel like I have always kind of played the stage management role, I think in my family, you know, I've always been kind of like the mediator, I guess, for lack of you know, better word. Um, and so I, I, and I wasn't really into theater necessarily as a high school kid. I mean, it was something that I, I guess I kind of did, but it, it was more, I did it because my friends were doing it and not because I had any personal interest in it. And so when I went to college, one of the very first classes I ended up taking was a technical uh, theater class. Um, because I thought the professor was really funny and so I was like oh well I'll I'll just take his class I need to take this class as a prerequisite anyway I might as well get it over with and during the course of that semester you know he was looking at my paperwork and he was like oh my gosh this is really really organized you know all that kind of stuff and convinced me to um, ASM the second show of the season which started the October of my freshman year so almost immediately I like dove into the theater community there. And uh, it was such a small program, they didn't offer a stage management class there. So I really learned how to stage manage you know, on my own and through books and the actual practice of stage managing at that university. Um, and it didn't occur to me that you could actually pursue this as a career until my senior year. So my undergraduate degree is actually in history and social science. And then uh, my senior year rolled around, and I realized that I could actually do this for a living, and I decided to go and pursue my MFA in stage management, Um, mainly because of the fact that I felt my undergrad, despite, you know, the... 10 to 12 shows that I stage managed while there, I didn't feel like that was adequate knowledge or experience to really get me into the door to actually stage manage for a living. So I wanted to go to an actual stage management program, um, and really learn the ins and outs of the field itself. Uh, and so I went to the university of Iowa, uh, and I, you know, ended up graduating from there. Uh, and wait, who was the mentor at the university of Iowa at the time? Well, James Berder was the head of the University of Iowa at the time, but David McGraw was the PSM and, uh, and also one of the lecture like professors in the stage management department. So the both of them together. Um, but it actually, really, it's David's fault that I really started down the history of stage management because in his equity class that he was teaching, he gave us some articles from the New York times from like 1920, that described like the stage managers duties. And I was like, this is insane that our job has really not changed a whole lot since 1920. Other than the fact that in that article, it talked about how stage managers the stage manager was also acting in that show. So they were frequently like performing on stage and then rushing off stage to like cue things off stage kind of thing. Other than that, I felt like the description was very similar to how I would describe stage management at that time. Um, And so that kind of started my personal, you know, interest in historical stage management. And I ended up switching from a production um based thesis to an academically based thesis so my thesis for my MFA program was actually on the history of American stage management from 1750 to 1850 and while I was doing that research I was really really frustrated just by the like lack of information that there was out there specifically about prompters and stage managers um, you know, like other, and this remains true to today in the fact that, you know, there aren't a lot of other um, scholars, historical scholars that are looking at this history and centering the experience of the prompter or the stage manager. Um, if they are doing that, then they're really focusing more on the prompt book and how the prompt book can act as a, um, a means of recreating a performance or, um, Another scholar looks at the, um, uh, rehearsal, like how rehearsals changed over time. And so there's a lot of references to the prompter, but again, it's not centered around the prompter's experience. It's centered
0: around the rehearsal process in and of itself, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And what's the difference between a prompter and a stage manager? Excellent question. (laughs) Um, The prompter was the
1: title of the person who was doing the stage managers labor before the 1870 essentially the prompter was the person who. um, gave uh, who called the show backstage calling all the cues they were also the person in rehearsal that was marking up the prompt book. Um, and recording whatever blocking or props or all of that kind of stuff. They often created a lot of the paperwork that we consider also part of the stage management team's responsibilities. Um, but uh, because at that time before 1870 they did a different show just about every single night actors actually memorized or had memorized like 30 shows and so they did a different show every single night meaning they were not line perfect when it came to those performances so they relied on the stage manager to also follow along in the script and to literally prompt them when they needed help you know when they were in the middle of the scene on stage uh, and so they would whisper the lines to the actors so that they could figure
0: out where they were and continue on with the show. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for that clarification. Um, So then you did your thesis at the University of Iowa and then did you go and be a professional stage manager or did you dive right back into academia?
1: No, I actually moved out to San Diego uh, after graduation, and uh, I joined Equity like shortly after that, Uh, and then I worked for about uh, five years, I think. I'd have to do the math again, but it was roughly five years where I worked at uh, both theater and opera companies, mostly in Southern California, although I also managed to get to Tennessee a couple of times, which was pretty fun. Um, and then I decided to return back to academia because I just I really needed to know why all of these titles shift. Right, we were just talking about how the prompter was the person that did that labor, and so I it really like was bothering me. Like, why did the why are we not called prompters today? Like, how did that shift even happen where we are now called stage managers instead of prompters? Um, because the other tidbit is that the stage manager was still a title at that time frame. But instead, they were doing things that we would associate with the director's duties, mainly um, giving that blocking out, uh, making decisions about what things from stock they were going to pull for, um, you know, scenic wise and all, all of those props, all of that kind of stuff. They were kind of making those decisions and making them happen. Um, they also they often chose the show, and occasionally they cast the show. But casting in and of itself was like a different experience than it is today, because they normally had their, you know, ensemble of actors that they kind of picked from, and so then it it was more about. it it was less about a a director sitting in front of a whole bunch of you know actors that they may or may not be familiar with and casting them in the show and more about like this person is the person that always plays the hero or this is the person that always plays the ingenue or whatever and so those would normally be like predetermined roles because that was what they always played in all of the rest of the shows. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so the stage manager was kind of more of the director and the prompter did a lot of the labor. We associate the stage
0: management today. <laughs> right. And that fascinated you so much that you were like, I have to go spend six years of my life studying it. Yes. <laughs> yep. That's absolutely true. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. And then what do you, when you graduate, are you planning to go back out into the world or are you planning to pursue a career in academia?
1: I, in my ideal world, I would love to be able to do both. I would really love to be able to find a university that's close enough to uh, at at least one, but preferably like a city of um, equity theaters, because obviously as an equity stage manager, I have to stay within equity jurisdiction. So in the ideal world, I'll find a nice city that needs a stage management professor. Um, although obviously I'm also through my PhD qualified to teach, you know, intro to theater, uh, script analysis, dramaturgy, like all of these other kinds of theater history, all of these other kind of courses. So if needed, I could take that on, but I think that I'd prefer to stay within the stage management, um, profession, both academically and as a professional.
0: Right. And then, so you grew up on the East coast, you went To grad school in the Midwest, you Mm -hmm. then went to San Diego, or yeah, San Diego. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've been to San Diego, and if I hadn't already fallen in love with Chicago, I would be living in San Diego right now because it's amazing, beautiful, yes, (laughs) perfect. And then you came back to Illinois. Is there like so? What is it about the academic? rigors of the Midwest that you keep coming back here for school? Uh, An excellent question.
1: (laughs) Um, Well, my, so for my MFA degree, when I went to go, uh, first of all, I applied through the ERTA program because I was really looking for some place that had financial aid that would be able to really help me meet financial, my financial needs in order to make my uh, MFA degree happen, um, so that was a that largely targeted only a, a handful of schools in the United States to begin with, uh, and then I went to go visit Iowa, um, where they made the offer to me. And while I was there, it just felt like I was coming home. It felt like such a community. You know, um, I, I think that there was about 20 minutes where I had to spend outside while the stage managers had like a quick little conversation before they invited me in to kind of say, you know, you know, here's what we know about our program, like come experience this class, you know, with us, that kind of stuff. So there was about 20 minutes where I was outside of the classroom so that they could talk about things that they didn't necessarily want me as a visitor and not really knowing anything about their department to kind of like overhear. And during that 20 minutes, uh, I kid you not. I think 30 different people stopped to chat with me in 20 minutes. Like it was just groups of people just cut. Hey, I'm not sure who you are. I'm so and so. It's so great to meet you. Where are you from? What are you doing? And me, I am an extremely shy person. Um, So for me to have those people willingly come out to me, even though I am extremely shy, was it felt like such a load off because I felt like this is a place where I will be able to find friends and like people who will wanna hang out with me. And it just felt like such a community. So that to me was really the reason I targeted um, the University of Iowa and I loved that program for it. Um, And then as far as coming back for um, my PhD, uh, a lot of PhD programs, uh, they they specialize in certain things, I guess. Uh, you know, uh, certain schools are better known for performance studies or theory and criticism and things like that. And the University of Illinois was one of those ones that really um, had an open basis, but they had a history of being a what I like to call like a nuts and bolts um, history department. Uh, in, and that was essentially what I wanted to do, right, is like, I'm not really looking at performance studies. I'm not really, you know, looking at theater criticism. I'm not really looking at any of those kind of things. I'm really looking at the nuts and bolts of what like how these changes happen over this you know time frame and so to me that's what really drew me to this program um especially because at the at the time when i first started here uh there was dr peter davis was here and his focus was actually on microhistory, and so he in one of his books looked at law paperwork for one of the earliest um english shows that happened in the colony of Virginia, I think, or something along those lines. And he really dissected that paperwork and that process, that methodology of inquiry into that, you know, history was really fascinating to me because I also felt like that was essentially the kind of work that I was going to have to do, right? Because I can't, I'm not looking at Shakespeare. I don't have a whole plethora of other scholars to be able to like join in conversation with, right? I'm really like my own island in this world of state stage management history. So I really needed, I was really interested in that methodology. And so I wanted to come here. And luckily that was one of the first classes that was offered. So that was really, really great. Although sadly, Peter Davis ended up retiring at the end of my first year here. (laughs) Um, But it all worked out well, you know, like I learned a lot from Peter Davis. I've learned a lot from all of the other faculty members here. And I feel really confident in where I've grown over the like last five years but he was a really big draw for me um in addition to the amazing research library that is here available at uiuc like there is so much content available uh you know at the, the library, they also have the rare books library, which has a whole bunch of prompt books. Um, although ironically, I'm not sure that any of the research that I've done in the rare books library actually went into my dissertation itself, um, but it was a really fascinating to look at and it really helped bolster the things that I was, you know, doing and looking at, even though it didn't make it into the actual dissertation. Um, but in addition, they have the interlibrary loan and through that office, I have been able to get my hands on so many any priceless artifacts. Um, it is thanks to them that I've seen, uh, I have for chapter one in my dissertation, I'm looking at 25 different stage mentoring handbooks published between 1870 and 1980. And most of those were made available to me through the interlibrary office. So the like, just the support level here for this, for my personal inquiry into stage mentoring history, this library has been so amazing you know, in
0: addition to my department. (laughs) Right. And I, I'm getting the feeling you can tell me I'm wrong, but I feel like you came to the Midwest because of the resources that it offers, which absolutely UIUC is a fantastic, like both university of Iowa and the university of Illinois are fantastic schools, but I have the distinct feeling that you wouldn't choose to come here if those like nothing about the midwest speaks to your heart it seems
1: you mean as far as like midwest midwest because i, I mean really honestly uh, i really do love the midwest in fact but part of the issue i think part of the challenge with being here at uiuc is the fact that there's not a equity theater here right so like it, I mean, if there was an equity theater here and there was an ability for me to be able to do both my scholarly work and my professional work, I think I would fall in love a whole lot more with Champaign-Urbana than I currently am. Not to say that I'm not in love with Champaign-Urbana because it's a beautiful small town, college town. You know, uh, I love the people that I've met here. I, I love a lot of the th- aspects about the Midwest. I have because of the fact that we live in the midwest i now have i'm i'm now a mom to six chickens out in my backyard which i can't believe i'm about to say but i actually really love you know like there are so many different things that i wouldn't be able to get anywhere else you know like if i lived in new york city i wouldn't be able to have my six chickens whom i love you know like So there there are a ton of aspects to the Midwest in particular that I love, you know, like I loved, I I will admit that I did not love living in Iowa the very first year. In fact, at the end of my very first semester, I I sobbed and I just cried because it was so flat compared to Connecticut. And it was just such a jarring, you know, like experience to leave Connecticut and live somewhere else for such a long time, you know, that wasn't, it didn't look like Connecticut, you know, the experience was, it was really mind blowing for me that first semester, but I also feel like having gone to San Diego, which by the way, I mean, is beautiful. It's a tour, you know, like it's paradise down there, right? It's always beautiful. It's always all of those kind of things. But I also found that I kind of missed the fall and winter. So I really liked that. I got to come back and re-experience
0: those for a little while. (laughs) And I want to make it clear that this, that wasn't a trap. I (laughs) grew up in Western central Illinois, the home of Western Illinois university. So I look at rural Illinois and I'm like, it's a great place to be from. Right. I loved growing up there, but my dad would be like, you can come home anytime you want. And I was like, for what? There is no theater here. And if it is, it's non-equity. So I don't know what you think I'm going to do in Western Central Illinois, Dad. Yes. Um, <laughs> all of which is to say, I proudly live in Chicago. I love my city. It is everything I want. But I also understand that disconnect because I grew up in Western Central Illinois, which is flat. And then I lived in Chicago, which is flat. And then I moved to New York and I was like, what do you mean they have hills and cities? <laughs> cities are flat. What is this nonsense? So I completely understand that disconnect of like, this is not how the world is shaped. <laughs> exactly. Oh my gosh. It was
1: like, it's really been crazy to live in all of these Cause I actually also lived in LA for a little while too. So we'll just throw LA in there, <laughs> which was also a much different experience from San Diego, despite being two and a half hours away from each other you know like it was total different vibe all of that kind of stuff so all that to say if i mean really honestly i really love champagne urbana so if i could find a champagne urbana like place that had professional you know uh equity theater and you know an academic position that i could you know sneak my way into i done. I'm there, right? Like I'm not a city girl, so I'm not going to lie to you. I, I think that I could do Chicago, but I could not, I, I, you know, could not really do LA. I really didn't like living in LA. There was not a lot of draw for me to be in LA. Um, and I really don't have any interest in being in like New York, New York. I think that I could go back to East coast, like Boston, Washington, DC, that kind of stuff. But New York is such a big city that i i'm just not a big really really big city kind of a girl i th- i think i could do it in other places but right. new york yeah. is just not one of those places <laughs> can you bring your chickens to boston i feel like oh my god well the thing is is that with boston you know i think that i would be able to but i'd have to do a uh, more uh I'd have to find the right neighborhood and the right area to be able to do it. But the problem would probably be is that those areas are probably extremely expensive. Mm -hmm. So unlike the Midwest here, where everything's super cheap, because no one really wants to live here, (laughs) you know, it'd be a very different experience to have chickens in outside Boston. Fair.
0: But not to say that it's not possible. (laughs) Right. Um, okay, I'm going to let's really focus in on your dissertation because that's the fascinating part and you sent me I'm just going to read these chapter headings chapter one defining stage management a study in co co occurrences chapter two stage manager as actor a problematic origin story chapter three stage managers association a flawed turning point chapter four now what where do stage managers go from here. And you seem to really be focusing in all of those chapters about the professionalization of the industry or of our career paths as stage managers. Can you define professionalization? Because to me, professional just means I get paid to do the work. And to my parents, professional means a very white collar, non-union, upper middle class job. And I feel like you have must have a very scholarly definition of what professionalization is. You know, that's so funny that you
1: say it that way. Um, I mean, I don't really feel like my definition re- is really all that scholarly, but um, we'll see, we'll see. Um, I mean, I would say professionalization is the process undertaken by an occupation um, in order to become publicly recognized as a profession. and. As such, there's usually some sort of criteria that must be met in order to gain that public approval. So when I'm looking at the professionalization of stage management, I'm thinking, uh, I mean, I guess uh, it started from like a couple of different things, but I think the number one thing is that when we turn to our family members and we go, oh, I'm a stage manager and they look at us blankly or they go, I have no idea what you do that's like the number one indicator that we have not reached professionalization in terms of my definition of professionalization, right? Like the fact that no one knows what we do. Um, The second issue would certainly be the fact that there are uh, so many different definitions of what a stage manager kind of does, even within our field, right? Like one person would be like, oh no, the stage manager is the first person who creates that prop list and then that gets handed over to the prop, Uh, designer, whereas other stage managers would say, "Uh uh-uh, the prop designer needs to make that list and then they give it to us, right? So there's like discrepancies over what we consider our labor versus something that's usually traditionally given to us. And that goes for, you know, any number of things. And so for me in this pursuit, it's really the goal is to raise the reputation of stage managers and and the status that goes along with that recognition. So, because we're not able to be recognized by the public as our own profession, we are unable to, you know, enjoy the fruits of that. So, when we talk in in my dissertation, I I borrow this guy Walinsky L. Uh, sorry, Harold L. Walinsky's theory of professionalization. I'm so used to just referencing him by his last name. <laughs> Um, His theory of professionalization, though, um, he started, first a little bit about him, he started as an organizational sociologist back in the 60s, and so he kind of developed this idea of theory of professionalization by studying, I think it was 15, although we really focused down on, I think, six of them, fields that in his feeling had fully professionalized. And so he analyzed what were the steps that they kind of took in order to reach that. And so the three big ones that come to most people's mind are um, being doctor, uh, being a lawyer, and actually being a clergy, um, which is interesting, but it, it makes sense once you think about it from the professionalization standpoint in that his theory of professionalization is that you need to have a clear definition of what that field is. Um, You need to have a strong training program, right? Like as a doctor, I cannot practice as a doctor until I have gone through the training that has been prescribed by that field and that is overseen by that field right so if i'm a university and i decide to start my own medical field i actually have to get approval from the doc, you know the medical board in order for me to actually start teaching students Um, You know, the third thing would be um, creating a professional organization, which doctors have, right? Because that's how we get the board exam, which then brings us to our fourth one, which is that there are qualifications, right? A doctor has to pass that board in order for them to be able to practice. And if someone from outside the field attempts to practice medicine, they would be facing real consequences because they'd be breaking the law because now those qualifications are built into our, you know law system, you know, Um, and in addition to that, they also live by like a code of ethics. So doctors have certain things that they have to do that kind of rule how they make certain decisions, right? Um, A doctor cannot ethically treat a family member without facing consequences from their own organization, like things like that. So when we're talking about the ideal version of professionalization, that's kind of what we're talking about. But in terms of my research, I really want to explore this idea of semi professionalization, which we already see in our world, right? We, we can see it in teachers, we can see it in nursing, and we can see it in um, uh, college professors, you know, uh, in, in that these three fields have achieved a certain sense of professionalization themselves, right? We ha- they meet a lot of those criteria. And while they are not monetarily paid, in all cases, as much as they should probably be paid, right? In in particular teachers, they do have the training, the qualifications. You can't just be a teacher. You know, there are state requirements that you have to pass certain things in order for you to be able to teach. That same sort of idea kind of goes into it. So, I'm essentially arguing that perhaps if we go through this professionalization process which we've attempted to do numerous times in our history then perhaps we can raise the reputation and status of our of our field in order to have some of those monetary benefits or at least a better um, negotiating ground with our producers because right now we are so undermined you know, there are so many producers who will tell you, oh, stage managers, they, you know, really make the, the, you know, production go, you know, they do all of these like wonderful things for us, but they also do things that undermine what they're saying, that lip service that they're giving, because they also turn to equity and they say, "Mm, do I really have to pay for an equity ASM on this show? You know, like, it's only 10 people on this show. I don't really need that person, right? Like we can just do away with that one. And then equity says, sure, why not? Because there's no, you know, there hasn't been a strong enough fight to say, equity, you need to stop this behavior. And so my hope is that through the, you know increase of professionalization, the, you know uh, increase in our status and reputation as stage managers and uh, like educating everyone about what value we bring it will just improve our field and the things surrounding our field.
0: Mm -hmm. And so that's what's most fascinating to me about your dissertation. What is most fascinating to you? What are the thing, what is the thing that you can't wait to tell people about? Oh my
1: gosh. You know, honestly, there are just, there are so like many nuggets, like inside my dissertation that I just can't wait for people to read. Um, although I'm worried because it's jam packed with information. So I'm worried that people are going to be weary reading it because I just, every single sentence is just like another, you know, thing that you're going to have to stop and think about and be like, wow, there are so many implications just on that one sentence alone. Um, but some of the things that I find really fascinating, um, are really the responses that uh, to events that happened at that time. So for example, in chapter two and three, I kind of talk about, the history of stage management and its relationship with equity. And so in that first chapter, you know, the first half of it I'm kind of reclaiming our original history because a lot of people just think, oh, well stage managers were always part of equity. Which is true, but they they're not thinking about why actor, you know, stage managers were always a part of it, actors equity when in reality it was because we were actors you know, heavily emphasized, you know, like acting was a huge part of stage management because if you recall, you were really directing and leading, you know, a major role in the show that you were doing back in the 1900s. And then we start seeing in chapter one, sorry, now I'm just jumping around. (laughs) In chapter one, I go through the, this like, the history of all of these handbooks and talking about how the titles and the names really changed over time. And so what we find is that by 1920, the stage manager is really serving more of like what we would consider the technical director's job. So there's so much emphasis on technical direction. You know, in several of them, they talk about how the stage manager should be able to tell immediately from across the stage, whether or not the set was built properly. And I don't have that ability today. I can't imagine a lot of stage managers have that ability today. So it's an interesting shift that happens. And right around that shift is when equity is like constantly saying, well, your state, your actors with this additional like responsibilities that you have to do, but you're not separate you know, from actors, you're, you're just actors that do these other roles, which is such a difference from how these handbooks are portraying stage managers at that exact same time. So it's almost like equity is holding on to this antiquated definition of stage management, while the stage management community is trying to push into this like new age, right, where we're, we became the technical you know, director sort of, and then we quickly moved into production stage management, what we consider production stage management today, the oversight of everything. You know, The ASM was still calling the show for quite a while until finally the stage manager was like, you know what, I don't wanna do this acting thing anymore. And if I'm not doing the acting thing anymore, I might as well be the person calling the show, right? So we see these like shifts happening over the course of that first chapter, which then influence our second chapter, when equity is trying to say, you know, you're just uh, actors with additional responsibilities, uh, and the stage management community just continues to get more and more frustrated until finally, in chapter three, they actually attempt to make their own organization uh, in the hopes of achieving professionalization. Right? They want to, you know. Increase the field standing, like all of the things that I just talked about, as far as like benefits of professionalization, were essentially the goals of creating the Stage Managers Association. Uh, and so, in that, it's really interesting to me um, some of the uh, incendiary like language that's used in these old letters um, in the nineteen in 1947, 1948 when these prominent theater people are going equity, like it is your own damn fault that these stage managers have now started their own organization and you're mad at them for it. If you had only listened to them back in 1938, in 1942, in 1947, for all of these things that they're asking you to negotiate for, then we wouldn't be in this situation right now, right? And so it's though that language that they're using is just like, I included a lot of it in my dissertation because I was just like, I cannot believe somebody like legit said this to like equity leadership. This is crazy. (laughs) And so that to me, I find really, really fascinating is just the shifting perceptions of stage management
0: over time. Mm -hmm. And then you haven't talked about chapter four yet, which is, which discusses how to create an anti-racist professionalization process. So we, I kind of feel like you've laid out the ground plan of how we professionalize, but how do we incorporate the anti-racist ethos into that professionalization?
1: Yes. So in that chapter, I really wanted to tie, you know, all of my historical findings to contemporary day. Um, But obviously with that, you know, the idea of professionalization is Uh, essentially the systemic racism, right? Like professionalization is the structure when we are referencing systemic racism. That's exactly what we're talking about, right? We're limiting who's uh, we're gatekeeping, you know, we're, we're creating that criteria. And so it, when other fields are using that in order to like box certain people out, I think that, We, we can flip that idea on its head, and perhaps get ahead of all of those things by ensuring that we are not gatekeeping in the sense that we are keeping out particular uh, ethnic minorities or really minorities in general right like um, instead, we just need to be thinking about how do we want to limit the field so that we ensure that the people who are actually taking these stage management contracts are actually people who are interested in stage managing, right? Like that's essentially the question that we have to ask. And so in that chapter four, I, uh, I use a lot of different, uh, I use three different, uh, works really. I use the, we see you white American theater that obviously was published last, um, June, July, I think it was June. Um, I also use Lisa Porter and Narda Alcorn's article on HowlRound, the "We Commit to Anti-Racist Stage Management Education," and then um, there's uh, several authors, but the article "Hold Please" on also on HowlRound that's available that also talks about like the ways that we can get white supremacy out, and so. My that fourth chapter is essentially outlining the major questions that we as a field need to ask ourselves and kind of maps out the conversations that we need to have the first of one being, of course we need to create this definition, right? Like that's the framework of professionalization. We need to figure out that definition. And so instead of just saying we need to define ourselves, I'm also saying we need to make sure that whatever language we are using to define ourselves is following, you know, the criteria that's already been set up like out for us by these other people, by these other works, including, you know, figuring out how we describe the ideal stage manager, right? Like there's a whole idea in a lot of those that perfectionism is ingrained in stage management and it is. So how, how can we change that as being a trait that we are looking for? How do we, we need to do that culture shift. And so this is that moment for us to be able to take a look at all of those things that we find problematic, which have already been laid out for us in these beautiful works and then just kind of, Implementing them as we define our field, um, and in addition to that, we also need to look at the training and education. Right, we need to uh, reassess. You know, what are the prerequisite traits that we're as? Uh, I mean, I include myself in there, even though I'm not there yet. But as a statement as a potential stagement of faculty member, what are the traits that I want to find in these students, and how are those traits? You know. Uh, potentially being systemically racism and limiting who I'm looking at. So how do we break that open and how do we really analyze like what we are looking for versus what we, you know, might not value as much, I guess. Um, And then I also really strongly feel, and I go through it a lot in my dissertation is about how there's a real disconnect between the training of stage managers in college and graduate programs compared to the actual role of stage managers in the actual workplace, right? In in non-union and union theater, it doesn't matter, but that training does not always necessarily prepare us because normally those programs focus on just paperwork creation, calling the show, and then maybe if they're really lucky, they might do a couple of lessons on, you know, leadership or, you know, like those kind of things, but that's not a huge emphasis as to what, is part of the stage manager's job. And part of what I argue in my dissertation is that in fact, emotional labor, emotional intelligence of the stage manager is a huge part of stage management throughout all of time. Even when it was back to being prompter and stage manager all the way, that's a huge through line. So even if all of these other labor like tasks might've changed over time, the stage manager has always been Someone who is expected to uh, emotionally manipulate their own feelings and the feelings of everyone around them. And we see that in quotes like, I think one of them said, you know. The stage manager needs to be able to be nice and sweet in order to butter up so and so, and then also be a holy fury for when they needed to discipline an actor who missed an entrance or whatever. So, there's this idea of like, we've also, we've always needed to do this emotional labor um, in our work, and yet we don't get the preparation to do those tasks within our, you know, set on training and uh, graduate school experiences. So, to me, I really think that. We need to add a lot more emotional intelligence training within the uh, training of stage managers, both at a BFA and MFA level. We need to increase the amount of leadership modules that we're talking about. How, do, how are we leaders within that room? Um, and how do, even though we're not, Given like um, hiring and firing power, we are undoubtedly like leaders inside that room. So, how are we using that leadership authority to both aid the production process um, and then also thinking about the ways that we serve as conflict managers? You know, even though we are not, I would argue that we are. Absolutely not, you know, human resource HR people like we should, there are certain things that I definitely think as a field, we need to figure out what is going to be our domain and what is not going to be our domain. But, you know, at the end of the day, we are going to still need some conflict management in order to do our job, you know, if we're in the middle of tech and You know, the lighting designers really, really frustrated because they're not getting far enough. You know, we need to be able to deal with that moment. We're not going to have time to go find an HR person to be able to come deal in that moment, right? We need to be able to deescalate the moment and that kind of stuff. And so we need that training that goes along with it. And then I would also argue that goes along with anti-racist training, right? Uh, And then I, you know, also explore additional training that we need to make available. So gap training, there are so many of us that are already out in that world that we don't have any of that training. So how can we expect our contemporary stage managers today to be able to do, you know, to be able to help teach younger stage managers if we're not giving them the experience and the training that they need in order to be able to do that. So I think that we need to highlight like gap training opportunities to be able to, You know, expand that. Um, I also think that we need to start looking at, uh, you know, different types of mentorship opportunities. I know that there's a lot of like mentor mentee kind of opportunities that are kind of out there, but I think that we can expand on those. You know, um, I didn't realize that this was a profession until I was a senior in college. You know, I think that we can reach back to those high school students that are stage managers and be able to like start to create some sort of future ship, right? Where we're like getting those kids connected with college and professional stage managers. Get them interested early, so that we could really start to connect. You know those fields. Um, also, returnships. Um, I should also note that I'm borrowing both of those terms from other things. So don't think that I created them. I absolutely did not. I'm stealing them from somewhere else. Um, but a return chip, meaning like uh, mid-career stage managers who left the field for whatever reason, cough pandemic, right? Like we've all like had a year off and so many of us will not be able to return right away because for whatever reason, you know, we've got kids at home, you know, we're, uh, We're not able to financially jump back into the field for whatever reason. Our area is just not ready to open back up. We got equity issues with like getting contracts out. So there's going to be a lot of us that are not necessarily going to be able to jump back into this field. So in like two to three years, we're going to need to start offering retraining experiences to remind those people of like, oh, hey, you've been out of it for a while. And we just changed a whole bunch of things. So like come take this workshop or come take this class and we'll get you caught up with it. Um sorry I'm like going on. <laughs> but it's all great. Right. Um I'm I have so much more. <laughs> you know, we also need to figure out, you know, because in Walensky's thing, professional organization, right? That's going to be the cornerstone of our professionalization, which is really where I think that we're stuck, right? Cuz we kind of did the defining stage management attempted to at least through the publishing process. We didn't make it because there were so many different definitions, but like we attempted it, you know, training, we've got all of these schools out there. So kind of we've met that standard, but we haven't really, because it's not regulated. We really need to come up with a professional organization and whether or not that is equity or whether or not we decide to go off on our own is like a conversation for the field to have. That's, I don't necessarily have a strong feeling one way or another. I think a lot of it is going to depend on equity's receptivity, like to the changes that our field needs to make in order to professionalize. Um, And so to me, figuring out whatever that professional organization is going to be to be able to organize you know, all to to get the needs that we need met, you know, we need to have that professional organization that's going to support us in whatever way. And I also think that a branch of that is going to be taking time um, and resources and dedicating them to like fact-finding missions and figuring out how much time are we actually spending on each one of the tasks that you know, we're doing like what should be counted as part of our pay, because I I don't think that we'll be able to get anywhere as far as like figuring out overtime versus what's considered part of our salary pay until we really dive into how much time are we spending on all of these tasks? You know, like, are we actually able to do this during the rehearsal time allotted? Or are there things that we just need to, you know, start excluding from this salary pay that, you know, we're expecting to get? Um, you know, and I just think that there's so many different studies, I think within that, that will help us get the things that we need, the support that we need and whether or not that means using that information to figure out the overtime question or whether or not using that, that information to strongly argue for the inclusion of the ASM on every contract. You know, I think that we could take that information and use it in so many different ways, but we need to be able to like dedicate time and resources to getting that information in the first place. Um, and then also, you know, the qualifications question, you know, eventually we're going to have to get there. We're going to have to figure out, you know, like, how do we want to limit the field, um, to, uh, you know, stage managers, people who are actually interested in stage managing rather than somebody who just, you know, is between two acting gigs and, you know, and not to say that an actor cannot jump into stage management, but I do feel very strongly that, you know, we are missing a lot of the educational, the training aspects to stage management when we jump from one to another. Um, and and so I think that our whatever we decide for our professional organization needs to then figure out qualifications. And that's not to say that college and graduate expert experiences are gonna be the only ones available. I think that there are a variety of different ways that we can assess proficiencies. And I think we need to get creative about how we're figuring out who's qualified and who's not qualified. And, you know, uh, as a professional organization, we could uh, consider creating something that's very similar to what the DGA does, right? Like they have their own um, training program for their assistant directors that they go through, or, you know, we could borrow from the United Scenic artists who create portfolio reviews so in order for you to work as a lighting designer you have to pass the lighting portfolio review and once you're in that union and you decide you wanted to do costumes you have to go through a costume portfolio review before you're allowed to actually work one of those costume contracts right so like in that similar venue where we can pick and choose and we can have a multi-track qualification process available which will hopefully help um, you know make things easier to access the work without um you know w- with also being able to limit who is able to do it who is interested in doing it um and then also offering workshops through whatever that professional organization is that could potentially like train um you know in i know the dga there's like a one year long thing you enter it you go through the entire process and if you end you know like you're good to go but you know we don't have to do something that that's That is that regimented, you know, we could be creative in how we're creating these workshops, you know, um, as far as figuring out proficiencies and that kind of stuff. And uh, I just think that we also need to consider how each one of these perpetuates systemic racism in and of itself, and then try to create pipelines to be able to overcome that. Um, including the, uh, including things like engaging middle and high school students so that we are literally making a pipeline through these qualifications. And then also being able to bridge underrepresented communities to these qualification resources to ensure that we are not nickel, like, neglecting anyone. We are not you know, um, limiting any community group. We are just merely wanting to make sure that the people who are actually holding our jobs are qualified for this work, like able to do the work kind of a deal.
0: That's what I got. <laughs> that's amazing. I cannot wait for this to come out. And I wish that I could be at your uh, practice presentation. Um, but I cannot wait for all of this to come out. I feel like it's going to just start so many conversations that we desperately need to have. Um, but I've only got a few minutes left with you. So what are you a nerd about? That's not stage management. Books, period. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, I know our listeners can't see me, but literally behind me is like seven or eight bookshelves full of books and this is only like one room's worth of books like I, I we have books all over this house i I love books I love reading it is
0: what I nerd out about <laughs> what do you what what have you read recently that you're like couldn't put it down or what do you go to when you're like oh, I can't think about the history of stage management anymore
1: I mean I Okay, so first of all, all I've been really reading and writing is my dissertation so like I haven't read like a quality book in I would argue quite a while. Um, what I, I'm currently rereading when I go to bed, uh, a David Eddings novel, uh, which is science I think it's fantasy technically. Um, but David Eddings, I started reading when I was 10, I think. And he's just always my go-to. Um, I When I say that I'm a nerd about books, I mean, I'm really obsessed. So I can't start a book without knowing when I'm going to have time to finish it. So right now is not a good time for me to be able to read new books. So I can only read the books that I have already read and know what is going to happen. Because otherwise, I will, you know, I will ruin myself because I will stay up until six o'clock in the morning. Like my husband thinks it's really funny because in all of the Harry Potter books, when they came out back when I was younger, I would read until two or three in the morning and I would just get so tired. I couldn't do it anymore. So I would skip over hundreds of pages so that I could find out what happened in the end. And my, and I still do it to this day, still do it to this day. And it makes my husband so angry. He's like, you are ruining the book. And I'm like, you don't understand. I get so wrapped up into the book. I need to know what happens in order for me to be able to truly enjoy the journey that I'm about to go on. Like, I need to know the outcome so that I know that I'm dedicating myself to something I want to dedicate myself to. Um, so I mean, I, I probably just did it. Um, oh my gosh, who was it? Brandon Sanderson, right? Is that it? Brandon Sanderson just came out with a book back in November. I think that that was the last book that I like really read, but that was because I took a week. I didn't do anything on my dissertation and I literally, well, I read like the first five chapters and then I skipped to the end, read those chapters. And then I went back and I read a little bit more and then I was like, wait a minute, hold on. Now I got to go back to like a little bit before so that I can like, I skipped through that entire book. And my husband is still... I ruined the book for him because I kept jumping around and he was very,
0: (laughs) I've definitely done that. I feel like I finished this fantasy trilogy. um, And then I was like, okay, I'm not done with it, but I'm only going to go, I'm going to reread the whole thing, but only the characters I like. And then so I read only their chapters and skipped everything else. And then literally last weekend as I'm procrastinating doing my own homework because I'm in an MBA program, um, I just read all three books. In three days, because I was like, I don't want to deal with anything except what's happening in this fantasy life.
1: Yep. Oh, exactly. (laughs) That was. I think that's exactly what I did with Brandon Sanderson because he does that same thing where you like each chapter is about a different character. So I like went through and I read all of this one chapter, one person's chapters, and then I skipped around, did another person's chapter, and then I just had to go back and redo them all because I was like, hold on, like. I feel like I miss significant things because I
0: jumped around. (laughs) Yeah. It's like choose your own adventure, but as an adult. Yeah, it is. I love it. (laughs) I love it. Okay, so what brings you joy outside of stage management, outside of books, which you can't see her face, but Jennifer is smiling so big because she loves her book so much. I do.
1: I love my book so much that I had a book-themed wedding. legit
0: <laughs> did you have paper did you have paper flowers or did you yeah, you, did. you could
1: actually see them a little bit in the back corner There's Yes. A, but i also have my um sorry this was my actual.
0: Ooh, that's can really see beautiful it, but it's uh blue and paper? orange
1: and green paper flowers from books it was very fun it was yeah. a great time um what brings me joy you know I feel like it's a little cliche, but I got to say, I, I really, I have a son, he's almost three and really he brings me so much joy. He also like drives me crazy. Don't please don't get me wrong. Um, he's a lot like me in that he, once he starts talking, he won't stop talking so it can be a lot during the day but really I just I love experiencing when he experiences something new or even if it's sometimes repeated he just finds so much joy right like and it's the weirdest things that he finds joy in like mommy I pooped today and you're just like great (laughs) but he just gets so excited about it. Mind you, he's been, you know, obviously he's been pooping since day one and also pooping in the potty for at least a year now, but there's just this like energetic joy that comes along with it. And I just, I love experiencing that with him. Uh, I feel like I learn how, I learn new ways to look at the world by having him around. (laughs)
0: Mm -hmm. That's really lovely. That's really beautiful, Thank you, Dr. (laughs) Jennifer. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks for spending this time. It was so much fun. (laughs) I, yeah, I loved listening to you talk. I would listen to you talk all the time and I
1: (laughs) Well, thank you. I hope that I covered everything. I feel like I, I'm sure that I missed things, but I guess you're just gonna have to wait until that dissertation comes out. I just hope it's not as boring as I kind of think that it is.
0: (laughs) Christmas 2021. Give us the dissertation
1: but be prepared to like take your time with it and really like enjoy every sentence. Don't do what I do. Don't skip to the end, you know, really enjoy, take your time, stop when you need to, because there's a lot that I'm putting
0: into that dissertation. (laughs) As I said, five minutes ago, places, everyone, please. This was the 14th and final episode of waiting for places, a podcast highlighting stage managers living and working in the central region of the United States. Thank you for listening. Please rate and review this podcast wherever you listen to it. It will help other stage managers find it. This podcast was presented by Ethical Rioting Productions. I am your host, Katrina Herman. This week on Waiting for Places, you heard from Jennifer Lee Sears Shire. The stage manager calling places was Rishi Wagle. This episode was edited by Katrina Herman with graphic design by Nicholas B. Paluha. A huge thank you to Morgan Zupanski, Chris Laporte, and the rest of the Waiting for Places think tank. Fredo Aguilar, Caitlin Boddy, Mary Hungerford, and Jacqueline Saldana. Thank you to everyone for listening. Stand by. All right. Actors are ready. Audience members are in place. Let's get this show on the roll.